0: You have your Bibles with you, turn to Acts chapter 18 with me. Have any of you ever had an experience where some of, someone's told you something that they need you to do? Um, maybe this is sort of like at work, you know, your job, school for some of you, um, you know, it's in life. Someone tells you, explains to you, hey, I need you to do this. Here's the steps to do it go and do it. And your immediate reaction is like, what in the world? I'm not going to be able to do that. And you have that sort of overwhelming sinking feeling of, I, I can't do that. That's beyond me. Like, I don't know how to do any of that stuff. Um, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus gives a charge to the disciples that they are going to go and be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And just in, I say the previous chapter, because really the previous chapter of Acts chapter 1 is Luke, the last chapter in Luke. So in the previous chapter, these disciples were like held up in a room scared for their lives. And here the next chapter, Jesus is telling them, you're going to go to the utter end of the earth and be my witnesses there. And you imagine maybe they have this feeling of, how could we possibly do that? Maybe you also have shifting gears a little bit in our minds, an experience like this, where you've watched somebody do something, something that you would have thought was really difficult, but then you watch someone do it, and you're like, oh, that doesn't seem as bad as I thought it was going to be, because you see them doing it, and you're like, oh, that kind of made it look easy. The book of Acts is an outlined, really specific description of how these men accomplished what Jesus told them to do, And it's an opportunity for us, as we read through the book of Acts, to take things in and see this is doable with God's help. So I want to look at Acts chapter 18, uh, starting in verse 1, says, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because He was of the same trade. He stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Let's pray. Lord, as we have gathered and come before you this morning, um, Lord, as we have sung about your holiness and also your grace, Truly, Lord, we don't deserve what you've done for us. We don't deserve to serve a holy God like you. Lord, I pray that you would humble each one of us this morning. Humble us under you. Lord, open our hearts for what you would have us to learn this morning. Lord, I thank you for all that you've done for us. In your name I pray, amen. In Acts chapter 18, um, we have what I believe are four principles from Paul of effective disciple-making. And I want to take some time to bring out each of these four principles. Um, Part of this comes from as Autumn and I have prepared for ministry in the United Kingdom, and we've thought about, you know, at this point, really for 10 years. Since we first got together, we've sort of been on this trajectory of going to the United Kingdom as missionaries. Um, And so for a lot of that time, we've been thinking about what is that going to look like? What does ministry look like when we get there? You know, we're going to make disciples, but how do we do that? And so we've really tried to look at the Bible and think, okay, what are some principles? How can we be biblical about this? And so part of what I want to share with you this morning is what we want to do when we get to the United Kingdom. And so these four things are sort of four steps that I think are important. And so as I share that, part of that is what I'm sharing. More importantly, these principles are not just for full-time ministers of the gospel. These principles are for disciple-making, which is the job of every single person in this room. And so I want to share with you these principles are just as applicable to you, where you are, where you work, the people you interact with, before we bring out these four principles, I guess there's a couple things that I want to sort of wrap our mind around. The first one is that we here in America are in a sort of a desperate position. We we are not, you know, as we talk about the United Kingdom, and I'll share a lot about this in the Sunday School Hour, I'd encourage you to come back. Um, You know, we're going to talk about how desperately they need the gospel, how lost they are. Um, but I don't want you to think that that means here in America we've got it good and everyone knows the gospel. That's absolutely not the truth. And I really believe when you look at the tra- trajectory of the United Kingdom who has pretty much abandoned God and, and their churches have all but closed and, and the newer generations pretty much have no exposure whatsoever to the gospel. We here in America are a couple generations behind that. So we are in a desperate position here. The second thing is that that is not someone else's responsibility to deal with that. That's ours. Um, We need to come to grips with and truly appreciate the fact that in Acts chapter 1, when Jesus gave this charge to the disciples, that didn't end with them. That charge is still being accomplished, and it's our duty to to fulfill that today. With that in mind, in Acts chapter 18, there are four principles. The first one that I think jumps out is in verse 4. Paul says that, or Luke says about Paul, that he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So Paul goes to the synagogue first. And that's not something he just does in the city of Corinth. We see that over and over again in the book of Acts. Paul's primary. Um, sort of mode of operation was he goes to a city, he finds the synagogue, and he goes there. And just in the previous chapter, in Acts chapter 17, um, it says in verse 1, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days reasoned with them from the scriptures. So just the previous chapter, it says this, this is his custom. It's what he always does. The question is, why? Why is it that he always goes to the synagogue? Um, Paul calls himself the apostle to the Gentiles. So why is it that the, the synagogue is always the first place he goes? There's lots of different reasons, I believe, why. One of the hints, though, if you look at verse 4, that he goes to the synagogue and he tries to persuade Jews and Greeks. There's Jews and Greeks at the synagogue. Um, the synagogue was the religious worship center for the Jews. One of the reasons I think is important that Paul went there is because he would teach from the Old Testament scriptures. Paul couldn't pull out his cell phone and, and look up you know, Isaiah 53 and, and speak from it. He, he couldn't even pull out his Bible. He had to go to the synagogue to teach from it. So for that's probably an important reason why he went there is because that's where the scriptures were. Um, you know, it was where the Jews were. The Jews already had sort of an understanding of, of who God was, and, and that was a good jumping-off point. They, they kind of understood this idea of a Messiah, so he could preach and, and go off of that. But there's something else that I think is an important reason why he went to the synagogue. Um, at the time, in the first century, uh, the synagogue really had many different purposes. It was that religious worship center for the Jews, but it also we see in the, book, in the Gospels, it was a marketplace, People would buy and sell things there. And of course, that was not right. It was wrong. It made Jesus very angry. But we know that's what the synagogue was for. It was, it was buying and selling things. Uh, it was used for that. We, we see in Acts chapter 22, it was almost used as like a court where they would try people um, for different cr- crimes and things like that. Uh, Josephus was a first century historian, and he described the synagogue as being used as a school for children. It was used as a center for community meals. Um, it was a political meeting place. And the way he described it in the first century was really religious worship had become second to it pretty much as being a community center for Jews and Greeks. And to be cut off from the synagogue in that period of time was to be just excommunicated from all of life if you're kicked out of the synagogue. The synagogue was where the community met. You would go there and you would see people that you know. You would um, buy things. You would, you would, um, that, that's where the community focused on. So Paul goes to the synagogue first in order to persuade Jews and Greeks. Um, Paul didn't go to Corinth and rent out a a building and start inviting people along so that he could share the gospel. He went to where the people were. So as we think about going to the United Kingdom, to a a town of 30, 40, 50,000 people with no church to preach the gospel— and we think, how are we gonna, what are we going to do when we get there? In our mind, step one is to identify where this, these community centers are, pl- places where people gather and they get to know each other, and really immerse ourselves in that community. Paul, what we see here as first principle is, is his gospel presentation, his discipleship making was community rooted. It was rooted in the community. Um. In the United Kingdom, every town and, and village and city has something called a high street. And that high street is where all the shops are, all the restaurants are, all the pubs are. And they're, they're just packed with people all day long, every day. That, that's a community center. That's, that's a good one that we can become a part of and really involve ourselves in. There, there's lots of them. There's neighborhoods. Um, over in the UK, the housing typically is not like a house by itself with a yard around it almost all the housing is, is row houses. You know, you've got a strip of houses and they're all connected. So your neighborhood, you're very close with your neighbors and that's a community that we want to be involved in and get to know our neighbors and things like that. And to us, that's sort of step one, to be rooted in the community, to go to where the people are, to identify where those communities are. I encourage you to think about your life, your circumstance. Where are those communities that you can be involved in? What does that look like here in America where you live? Um, Most of us, I I know this is true of me, most of us probably fill that sort of void and that that desire in our heart for community. We fill that here at church. That's where I feel the most comfortable. That's where I kind of feel that sense of community, is when I come to church, there's people that I know, we have this bond in Christ. Uh, We have so much in common with each other because of that So so this is where my community is. But we can't afford as Christians for this to be the only community that we're a part of. Sometimes we have to make ourselves uncomfortable. We have to find other communities that we can be involved in. So I encourage you to think about what are some communities that you could be involved in? Maybe there's some that as you think about your life, you you already are involved in. Um, I'm sure most of you live in some type of neighborhood. You have some kind of neighbors. They may be, you know, a field away or something like that. Um, But you have neighbors that you can get to know. There are, if you have children in school, that's a community right there uh, that often uh, families and people gather around. You can meet people and get to know people at PTA meetings or whatever. Um, What's the name of the restaurant right here in town? Cliffs? Driving in, I mean, I forget what time it was yesterday, but it was like packed full of cars in front of that little restaurant in Horton. And so that's a community center. That's where people go, and and they know each other, and think about ways that you can be involved in community. Step one for us as we get to the United Kingdom is to identify and immerse ourselves in communities. This isn't something that happens naturally for me. I'm not like a, I I wouldn't consider myself an extrovert. Um, If I could sort of paint my perfect life selfishly, I would have a job where I clock in and clock out. Maybe I just work on a computer. I never have to see anybody, um, I come home, I get to spend time with my family, and then I go to church. And that's that's it. I would love that. <laughs> um, and I know that, that maybe you resonate with that. But God doesn't just call extroverts to make disciples. He calls all of us to make disciples. I mean, stepping out of our comfort zone. If you think about your life and you think, I'm really not a part of... Um, any communities. I really don't have any interests or hobbies that connect me with other people. My job doesn't really see other people. I would encourage you to think about what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 19, says, "...for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews." To those under the law, I became as one under the law. This is important, what he says in parentheses. Though not being myself, or I'm sorry, not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. And here's the important part. Not being outside the law of, of God, but under law of Christ. In other words, Paul's not saying I'm, I'm willing to sin in order to connect with people. That's, that, I'm under the law towards Christ or of Christ, But verse 21, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. Paul understood that in order to reach the lost people, we have to go to them and to meet them where they are. Um, to give you a, an example, I, I really am not that into soccer. And that, that can't leave this room because I'm going to the United Kingdom as a. <laughs> um, I, I would watch just about any sport before I would watch soccer. Uh, it just feels like, you know, they just kick the ball back and forth. There's no like slow progress towards a goal, you know. It's, but when, when I lived there before and when we moved back, I'm going to pick a team. I'm going to watch every single game. I'm going to follow what players are going where because that's a community that I can't afford not to be a part of, even though I might have to force myself to watch all those games. When people look at passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 9, it bothers me to no end when they, they take that section of verses and they almost use that as an excuse for their sin. You know, I'm just being all things to all people. And that's so opposite of what Paul is trying to say. He's talking about, in this whole passage, the rights he's willing to give up. The point he's making is, what are you willing to give up in order to connect with people and share the gospel with them? So I'd encourage you to think, you know, if you don't have any interests, you don't have any hobbies that connect you with people, your job doesn't connect with people, um, then something needs to change in your life in order to make those connections and become uh, a part of that community. So the first step we see in verse four is to identify, immerse ourselves in communities, or it's Paul's message was community rooted. The next thing we see in verses two and three, Paul, he's come to this city of Corinth, and he finds this guy named Aquila um, and his wife Priscilla, and he meets them, and and you can tell from the circumstance they're in, they just arrived to Corinth themselves. It's not a pleasant circumstance why they're there. They were forced to move there by Pontius. Um, but he meets this couple, and they have this thing in common being tent makers. And you can see in verse 3, it says, because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. Um, so Paul, he seeks them out and he moves in with them. The reason why he lives with them It says in verse 3, is because they were of the same trade. There's really no reason to think as you read through these passages that these were believers. It doesn't say because they were brothers and sisters in Christ, because they, they knew the Lord or any of that stuff. They were Jews primarily, and they shared something in common with him. And you can see what Paul did is he seeks them out, and he builds a relationship with them because they had this thing in common. He went as far as to actually move in with them and work with them. And we know that they eventually do come to Christ because at the end of verse 18, when Paul leaves Corinth, he actually takes them with him. And when they move on to the next city, uh, Ap- Apollos is standing up in the synagogue and he's preaching about the baptism of John. And so he doesn't quite have all the facts right about Jesus. And so it's Aquila and Priscilla who stand up and, and kind of pull Apollos aside the and they explain Christ to him. So we know that this, this relationship that Paul builds leads to them coming to Christ and, and becoming co workers with him. At the end of Romans, he writes to, um, to the church there to greet Aquila and Priscilla, co-workers of mine in the gospel. This is intentional discipleship making from Paul and we see it successful. So first of all, our, our, Paul's gospel presentation was community rooted, but then we, we see that it's cultivating relationships was a big part of his uh, discipleship making. And you can, I'm sure that at this time, building this relationship with them was probably uncomfortable. It probably meant making some sacrifices, but you can see it's intentional and it was effective. One of the most practical methods, I think, of cultivating relationships with people, you actually see all through the gospels and you see Jesus doing it over and over and over again. And he gets in trouble for it over and over and over again. But you know what you see Jesus doing? Eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. That, that phrase is used lots of times, and, and the Pharisees are always getting him in trouble. You know, how can he do that? How can he eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? I think that's such a practical way of cultivating relationships with people that when, when we think about what ministry looks like when we get to the United Kingdom, we want to be involved in these communities, um, really get, you know, putting ourselves out there uh, getting to know people, and then step two is bringing them into our home, having meals with them. Um, we would love it if three or four nights a week we have people in our home for dinner, or coming over for lunch, or meeting our kids for play dates, and and intentionally cultivating those relationships. You see Paul doing it. We see Jesus doing it. It's a biblical principle. Um, as you think about the communities that you are a part of, and the relationships that God has provided for you, and the people that you see on a regular basis? Are there opportunities that you could take to cultivate that relationship and build on that? It's a biblical principle. There is a a story that um, some missionaries shared at a conference we were at a little while ago, and they described how, you know, they were kind of doing the same thing we are, where they're traveling around and, and presenting their ministry to churches, but Uh, they had talked about a change that they made in their personal lives a couple of years back. And they said that they they were kind of talking as a couple, and they decided that they were going to completely eliminate all um, drive-throughs, all um, pay-at-the-pumps, and self-checkouts. Because all those things are really just designed to eliminate interaction with people. And and to me, I'm like, yes, I love those things. (laughs) Um, but but they, they decided we're going to cut out all of that because all that does is, is you, may, you see less people that way. So if they go to the bank, they're going to go inside. If they you know check out a register, they're always going to try to check out at the same person. Um, and so there's this one gas station where they used to pay at the pump and they decided we're going to go inside from now on. So every time they got gas, they went into the gas station and they talked to the same attendant who was always there. And he was a Middle Eastern man, and they just struck up conversations with him. And that's that first idea of being involved in the community. And so they're having conversations with him, asking him where he's from, asking about his family, um, kind of developing a little bit of a friendship there. And then they took that kind of uncomfortable, bold step, and they said, hey, do you want to come to our house for dinner sometime? And he said yes. So he came to their house for dinner, and what he told them was he had been in America for something like 15 years, and this was the first time an American had ever invited him to their home. And so he came over and had dinner with them, and I think that they had another couple with them as well. And that became a regular thing, and they started a Bible study with him, and he got saved. And that's such a specific, like you see it clear as day in front of you how this can work. You know, you, you can't do this without step one of being involved in the community and meeting people. But doing that step one doesn't really help unless you do step two, which is you take that next step of building those friendships. And that's what Paul does here in Acts chapter 18 when he he, he intentionally develops this relationship with Aquila and Priscilla. So Paul's discipleship making is community rooted. It, it cultivates relationships. And the third thing we see again in verse four, when it says, he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. That word persuade is the one that I really wanna point out and talk about because it's a word that you see used over and over again in the book of Acts. Paul persuades people with the gospel. Um, As we think about going to the United Kingdom, uh, we want to identify, immerse ourselves in the community. We want to cultivate relationships. The third step that we have sort of uh, talked about and outlined is we want to present a clear and persuasive gospel. Uh, Paul... He uses compelling rhetoric. If I'm going to alliterate it like the other points, um, to, to see another example of one of the ways Paul uses persuasive language, turn with me to Acts chapter 26. In in Acts chapter 26, for the last three or four chapters, Paul has been imprisoned for quite some time. He's been in prison. Um, and he's kind of been moved around. He's been, uh, things have not been pleasant for him. At this point, he finally gets a chance to make his defense before the king. So he comes before the king and, and, he, and he explains everything that's happened to him. He explains what Jesus did for him, he explains his conversion, he explains, he just gives his whole testimony. And so the whole chapter is him explaining all of that to the king, so him making his defense. And verse 24 says, And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, he yells this, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. You're going crazy. Look at Paul's response in verse 25. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things and I'm And to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And King Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? There's that word, persuade. Or the the new King James says, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. And, And you see that over and over in Acts. Paul doesn't just tell people what he believes. He's intentionally persuasive with his language. And you can see that as you look at these passages, this passage here, the first thing after Paul makes his whole defense, he gets, someone yells that he's crazy. I mean, that's, that's kind of offensive, to be honest. But look at his response. He says, most noble festus. Or, or most uh, excellent Festus. He's very um, political with his choice of words. And, and that's on purpose. He's trying to be persuasive with his language. He, you can see he, he kind of compliments the king as he's talking to him. He says, you know, none of this would escape your attention. Most, you know, this, you, you know this stuff's going on, right? You believe the prophets, don't you? I mean, he's really careful and persuasive with the way that he talks. And that's something that he does over and over, Paul does, in, when he goes to the city of uh, Lystra, where it's, it's a Gentile city, um, and, and as Paul and Barnabas are there and they're healing people, uh, the, all the people in the inhabitants start, like, worshiping them as gods. And if you remember that story, the way Paul responds when he shares the gospel, he ties that into his gospel presentation. When they go to, um, to Jewish towns, he presents it clearly from the scripture as he presents the gospel. When he goes to Athens, where they really, they believe anything and everything, and they have this, stat, this uh, sort of monument to the unknown God. His gospel presentation is all about that. He's very intentionally adapts his presentation to the circumstance that he's in. When he's, that's how he shares the gospel. He's persuasive. Francis Schaeffer says, when talking about Paul, that if he had only one hour to share the gospel with a person, he would spend the first 45 minutes finding out what the person believed about God and the last 15 minutes presenting Christ from that basis. That's sort of the mode of operation that Paul works in when he shares the gospel. He's persuasive. He ties it in with the people that he's sharing the gospel with. For me, as I think about opportunities that I've had to share the gospel in the past, and I, and I go back a few years and I think about some different opportunities, there's been times when, and maybe you can kind of relate to this feeling, you're having a conversation with somebody, it kind of starts going down this path of sort of spiritual things. And you kind of get like this sort of pit in your stomach and you get like, oh man, I'm about to share the gospel. I get, here we go, I'm, I got an opportunity here. So you kind of get nervous, you're like, okay, this seems like the door's open, I'm going to share the gospel. Um, and I, as I think about opportunities I've done that. There's been plenty of times where what I've done is I've said, well, um, can I tell you what I believe? I believe that, and then I kind of spit out my memorized spiel. You know, I believe that, uh, you know, we're all sinners. We all deserve to go to hell because of our sin, but because of what Christ did on the cross, because he died for us, we can trust in him and have eternal life. You know, whatever it is, I kind of say it. And you know what the response has always been? Oh, Cool good for you. Because when you tell somebody what you believe, you're kind of opening the door for them to say, okay, it's cool that you believe that. I think it's it's a challenge to think, how can I really be persuasive with the people that I'm sharing the gospel with? I think it takes, it's worth really thinking about that, getting to know people, getting to know their circumstance. And when you share the gospel, making it applicable for them. That's what Paul does um, all throughout his ministry i uh, up until I left my secular job about a year ago, um, I've been, about, spent about nine or ten years in sales, and so they teach us a lot about that idea. Now, I think the gospel is not a sales pitch. I don't want to say that, but there is some principles about how we share the gospel that I think are important and we should take extra time to think about how we can be persuasive, there are lots of resources that can help you. Um, when we get to the United Kingdom, as, as we are a part of the community, we're building relationships with people. Those two things are really pointless if we don't get to this third part, which is presenting a persuasive gospel to them. Otherwise, those, those other two things are kind of, there's no reason to do them. Um, There are are Bible studies. That's what we imagine doing is as we're getting to know people, we're building this friendship, we're having them to our house for dinner. Um, And it's something that Autumn and I have done here, um, even in America, is would you like to do a Bible study with us? You know, they know we're Christians. They know that this is important to us. And we say, hey, can we like just take some of your time to explain why this is so important to us? And there are so many great Bible studies that are very persuasive and help with that conversation. Um, I would encourage you, if you feel like as you're thinking about your own life, you're thinking about the, the communities you're involved and in, you think about your friendships that you've built and you're ready to like do this step of, of presenting that clear persuasive gospel, if it seems kind of daunting and scary and I don't know how to do that, talk to pastor about that. I'm sure he would have lots of advice of, of resources you could use and Bible studies you could do with people. Um, there's lots of them out there that are very helpful. It might seem scary or daunting, I want to encourage you that you're not alone in doing that. You know, you're not off on your own trying to do this. You've got a resource here in the church. And that's really the, the fourth principle that we see in Acts chapter 18. Uh, you see in verse 11, Paul is here at Corinth. And in verse 11, it says that he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. And then in verse 18, it says, um, after this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of his brothers. Paul didn't just go there, share the gospel, people got saved, and he said, okay, you're on your own. The point of Paul being there was to plant a church. That's our goal when we go to the United Kingdom, is to plant a church. We don't want to just go to community, people get saved, and then send them off to go make disciples. The way, the mode of operation that God has designed to work in the world is through the local church. Um, so Paul, fourth point would be his, his process of discipleship was ch- resulted in a church. It was church resulting. Um, God has not called most of you to go and plant a church. So in some ways, this, this, this point might seem the least applicable to you and the most applicable to Autumn and I's full-time church planters. But I think it is very applicable because it's important to keep in mind the way that God works in the world and works in this community is through this church. So it's important to lean on and to use this church. Coming to services on a Sunday should be a time when we come, we're getting equipped, we're being armed, we're being filled so that we can then go out into the world Monday through Saturday, and do the work, and then come back and be equipped again and and rearmed and and encouraged. Um, It's important to see the the value in the local church as really the the main force of this process of making disciples. As you're sharing the gospel, and as you're trying to to explain to people what Christ has done for them, don't forsake the importance of this church and involving those people here as well. Making disciples is not just inviting people to church. It's about the process of you sharing what Christ has done for them. However, shouldn't forsake the importance of, of this church. Paul took a lot of time and effort uh, to make disciples, a year and six months, and then many days after that, um, preaching the gospel to them, helping them to understand. Our goal when we get to the U.K is to, we say, is to uh, plant indigenous churches full of disciple-making disciples. That's our goal. Um, That's what this church here should be, is is a church full of disciple-making disciples. I'd encourage you to think about the opportunities God's given you. Think about the situation he's put you in. It's not by accident. He's put you in those situations. He's put you in the circles that you're in and the job that you have, the neighbors you have, because you may be the only light that they have to share the gospel with them. As I've talked about all this this morning, um, if this all seems kind of foreign to you, and it just, uh, even the concept, as, as we sang our songs this morning about the grace of God and his holiness and what he's done for us, if you have never personally accepted, and trusted in Christ as your Savior, now is the time to do that. And if you have, and you've been challenged, that maybe there's opportunities that you could take in your personal life to make disciples, to truly grab a hold of the charge in Acts chapter 1 in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the utter ends of the earth, I would encourage you to commit to truly taking hold of that and and living that out. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word and for what a challenge it can be to us. Lord, I thank you that it can be so practical and that it can be so helpful. Lord, I am so thankful for what you have done for us on the cross and for your grace and your love for us. Lord, I pray that you would challenge every single one of us, myself included to see our role and our need to be involved in the growing of your body and sharing of your love for other people. Lord, I thank you once again in your name I pray.